All right, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to open to the book of James. James chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Well, I'll tell you, studying this passage this week, there were many times where I thought, you know what, I'm just going to read it, we're going to pray, and we're going to go home. Mainly because that first part about encouraging us not to be many teachers. (laughs) Because when you're a teacher, you're held to a greater level of accountability. You're going to answer for more. And the reason you're going to answer for more is because of the effect that you have on other people's lives. So when you impact people to go a direction, you're uh, somewhat responsible for that direction that they go. There's a a tendency sometimes to want to set yourself up as somebody that's a position of authority or want to set yourself up in other people's lives as, as as a teacher. I'll be honest, I think social media points that out a lot. Because there's a lot of people putting a lot of things out there on social media. Why would they do that? I think it's to have a voice. I think it's to be an impact. Kind of the danger with that same thing is we can often be impacted by people that don't really know what they're talking about. Early on when I surrendered to ministry, well, first it terrified me to be honest with you. God really had to do some work in me to bring me to a point where I finally surrendered. But when I did surrender, I talked to my pastor even. I said, you know, If I go off to Bible college, it's going to be four years. What if Christ comes back before I'm done? And his response surprised me. He says, man, what an awesome place to be when the Lord comes back. Studying His Word. I was like, well, yeah, there is that. But I remember thinking, man, I don't know if I can waste four years. But then I remember reading through the Bible. I did a word study on just the word knowledge. And I had a very limited ability at that time. And I saw passages like, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And thought, well, I better go get some knowledge. I better go... I better go learn something. It's a good thing I did because I noticed that in First Timothy, when it starts giving the qualifications for a pastor, it said not a novice. In other words, not somebody that's new at this. They need some. They need some time. You know, I remember one year when our kids were going off to camp and stuff. Lisa and I went down to camp to pick up the kids, and one of the kids in the youth group got in the van and he says, "Pastor Greg, he says I want to preach a sermon, and I want to preach a sermon on Revelation." I said, "Oh, really? <laughs> you do?" Do you? <laughs> I said, I said, I'll tell you what. I said, 
we'll get together. I'll start teaching you. You'll start learning how to study the Bible, learn how to put together a sermon. Because you got to be the servant to the sermon, not the master of it. You got to you got to learn some things here. And you know what? Revelation is not not probably where we're going to start. But he just spent a whole week at camp listening to this fiery preacher, seeing this fiery preacher give these messages on Revelation and getting everybody ready for the return of Christ. And I'm sure he was like, man, I want to do that. Well, he never preached a sermon. His passion faded quickly. Well, you know what? You see a little bit of that when you look back in the Jewish culture. Reading through the New Testament, you find that Jesus, in confronting the Pharisees, often pointed out to them that, look, you love being a teacher because of the crowd that follows you through the community and, and you get the best seats at the dinner parties and, uh, and you get uh, looked up to by other people. Uh, but he said, you know what? That's kind of where it ends. You got all of your praise coming from people. That's what you're seeking. And so that's what you got. And so you got nothing before God. He's not looking upon you with real favor. Well, it seems that these people that James is writing to, as we recognize back in chapter 1, they are also of Jewish descent, so they're coming right from that culture. These are Jewish people that have put their faith in Christ. But it looks like some of that same culture is rubbed off on them a little bit because apparently among these people that he's writing to, he had a lot of people that were wanting to be teachers. And James is like, hey, wait a minute, slow down. He's saying that's not all that's to it. Actually, there's a, there's a stronger accountability. There's a more severe judgment that God is going to hold you to. But he, that's just the beginning. The, the rest of it kind of applies not just to those who would be teacher, but to all of us as we set ourselves up as to give advice to other people, kind of becoming a teacher in their life, or whether we uh, formally teach a class or anything or not. It all comes down to this one thing, and that's the use of the tongue. Why should people be careful at entering into the position of a teacher? Because it involves speaking. It involves the use of our tongue. And the use of our tongue can be tricky. There's a lot of good things that can happen with it. And there's a lot of horrible things that can happen with it. And the fact of the matter is, is the more you talk, the more wrong things you're going to have said in your life. It's just the law of averages. And so he's saying, since, since nobody can control the tongue completely... You at least need to be careful. And that's what we're looking at. What is the proposition or the message, the, the theme of the whole passage here is that we need to guard our speech. And the very first reason that he gives for that is because words bring accountability. You're going to be held in judgment over your impact in other people's lives if you impact them in the wrong direction, if you send them down the wrong path, if you end up saying things that are wrong. And there's an accountability. Now, we've already recognized actually in the book of James that he's already brought up a general accountability for all of us for what we say. Back in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Everybody has two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as much as you speak. We need to be slow at speaking. Think before you speak. We also recognize in verse 26 of James chapter 1 that it said, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. How we use our tongue can reveal that our, whether our religion, our faith before God is genuine or false. If you claim to be religious but don't have a control, haven't reined in your tongue, then your religion is worthless. If you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your own heart. And so James has already pointed out that we need to guard our speech. In fact, as he went from there and we look at what is the context of this, we just finished with chapter 2 
where he was talking about the nature of our faith. Back in James chapter 1, he had pointed out that we needed to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. If we're hearers only, then we deceive ourselves. James chapter 2, talking about the relationship of faith and works, he says, faith without works is dead. We're saved by our faith, but any faith that is a saving faith, it works in your life. It changes your life. Well, the very next thing he goes into is the use of our tongue. And I can't help but think that those are very closely related. If our faith doesn't impact our speech, then we have to question our faith. And so it's built on all of this. And what is that? All through James 1 and 2, he's holding us accountable. He keeps bringing up our speech, being doers of the Word. What is our faith? Faith changes our life. Okay, what is our speech like? Is our speech changed? Do we guard our speech? Are we careful with our speech? Wanting to make sure that when we speak into somebody's life, that we're speaking truth into their life. Now, today in our culture, and in their culture too, we really got to watch not only where we speak, but where are we quiet. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about that in many cases too, because we're in a society and a culture right now that really wants to silence a lot of truth. Romans chapter 1 talks about the wickedness of mankind and how they take the, the truth of God and they suppress the truth. And so we need to really be on our toes in conversations. When do we need to be quiet? But when do we need to speak? And when it's time to speak, we need to speak well. And we need to speak truth into those situations. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, in verses 33 through 37, Jesus said this, He says, Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our speech is an interesting part of our life. I think it was John MacArthur in his commentary, he pointed out our speech is the place where it's the easiest to be the most wicked. As I followed through his reasoning, I would have to totally agree. There's some sins in this world that for one reason or another, because you're not there, because you're not in the proximity of something evil going on or whatever, just because of you're not being in a certain place at a certain time, that you don't have the opportunity to participate in, but your mouth can go there. So even your uh, a physical ability to participate in sin might be limited. Your mouth is never limited. And so what does Jesus point out here? He says, well, as we're talking about that accountability, there's a judgment. And He says we're going to stand in judgment for every planned, mean word that you say. Now, every careless word. Now, if you plan a mean word to say, which... I think we probably all can acknowledge that we've done that at a time or two. Obviously, you're going to be held to account for that. But he says, even the careless, the lazy words, those we get held accountable for. All the more reason to guard our speech. Not only our speech, but guard our heart. right? Because Jesus says, where do all the words come from? The words reveal who we are. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says, from a good tree with a good root, you get good fruit. From a bad tree with a bad root, you don't get good fruit. And so we need to guard our hearts because uh, I know sometimes we'll say something and we shock even ourselves sometimes. We say, oh, that, I'm sorry, that really wasn't me. Who was it? It was. It reveals darkness and uh, the, 
that is with inside of ourselves. And so curbing our speech helps us to curb that darkness and bring that into check. And I think that's exactly kind of the point that James is making when he says, look, we put the bit in the horse's mouth, we control the whole horse. This huge, uh, powerful animal, we control the whole thing just by its mouth. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. We need to guard our speech because why? on one hand, words bring accountability. Now, he says everybody stumbles when it comes to words. He says if you can find anybody that has completely controlled their speech, that person is a perfect person. Now, the word perfect, I don't think it means moral perfection at this point. I think it just means maturity. Because the word itself means completion. It's the word telos. And when I took Greek in college, we used to play a game once in a while. You'd say, alright, we're going to play some Greek bingo today. And, uh, but it was uh, with the word telos. And so he had these little cards that he made up with the word telos instead of bingo on it and numbers on it. And, uh, we'd go through and play a game. But the word telos means complete. Bingo. Got it. All of them filled in. So, it means completion. He says, look, if anybody can control their language, then they've got her down. If you can control your tongue, you can control your body. If you control the horse's mouth, you control the whole horse. But not only do words bring accountability, but they also bring impact. They also bring impact. And when he gives these next illustrations, and, and James has given a lot of illustrations, like six illustrations in these 12 verses. But as he uses these next illustrations, he's actually not even talking about uh, pro or con. Now, he did talk a little bit about how we all stumble in our words, so there's that part. But when he's talking about steering the horse left and right, running the ship left and right, um, he's, he's not even talking about whether the impact is negative or positive. The fact of the matter is, is words do both. Words can bring a tremendous amount of encouragement to somebody's life that's going through a struggle. They can also bring a tremendous amount of discouragement to somebody's life as well. Words can bring peace and harmony in certain relationships in certain situations. Words can also bring division and hatred. You can have a coach that can stand up and through a few words at a timeout can rally a team to, to overcome and, and get a victory and perform well. And that same coach can also demean and bring discouragement, which brings defeat also. Hitler tried a political coup. He tried to take over in uh, 1923, I think it was, in Munich, in Germany. And it failed, and he got thrown in prison for five years for it. And so while he was in prison for five years, he wrote out a little bit of an autobiography, kind of a, how he came to his anti-Semitic views, and also his political philosophy and his plans for Germany. And he wrote that and published it in a book called Mein Kampf. And so you got this guy sitting in prison, putting together his philosophy for the nation, and publishing this book. Well, we all know the history. Hitler rose to power, saw the fruition of his plans until the Allies would get enough power mustered against him to put an end to it. And did you know that if you look at the death toll for World War II, for every word that is written down in Mein Kampf, 125 people died. That's an incredible amount of destruction. At the same time, how many people have had their whole eternity changed and impacted for each word in this? You see, our words have power to impact, to set people on a course in life. We need to make sure that we're setting them on the right course. You know, it talks about the horse. You put the bridle in its mouth and you can turn it one way or another. We had Shetland ponies. My grandpa bought. Those are ornery buggers. They would try to rub you off on a fence. They would step on you. All kinds of stuff. But still, that range, you could make them go the direction you wanted to. But you could control them. 
the ships. It talks about the rudder. Now you go by a huge ship, and of course they got a big rudder, but not compared to the ship. It's amazing. You know, I remember one time we had a, a 16-foot fiberglass boat at the time with a 100-horse Mercury engine on it, and I took it into the marina for something. It was acting up somehow, and I took it in to get fixed. And I told the guy, I said, also, you know what? When we're cruising across the lake, I have to hold it straight. It like always wants to turn. Anything can be done about that? That big fin on the bottom, down by the propeller, that's not adjustable. So what do you do? But he said, well, just adjust this other one. Right above the propeller of the boat motor, there's this little tiny, it's about this tall, and it's about this wide. And it looks like another little kind of a rudder. I would have never thought that thing really did much of anything. I didn't know why it was there. There's a bolt on the top of that, and you can loosen that, and you can tip it just a little bit. And so we loosened that and tipped it a little bit, tightened that boat up. And you know what? My boat would just go straight across the lake without holding on to the steering wheel now. Think of that tiny little thing and all that weight. Just a nudge. Just barely moved it, and it totally changed how that boat steered. That's an amazing thing. Well, the Bible says, look, that's exactly what we have within us. We have this tongue. And this tongue can do amazing things. It can do some really good things, and it can do some really horrible things. And so for that reason, that reason, we need to, we need to be careful on how we impact other people. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Timothy was, was left at Ephesus to help get the church going, get it strengthened, get it on the right path. And the Apostle Paul tells him, As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You know, the early church had a, obviously a real struggle with this. James is writing to the people and said, look, too many of you are trying to be teachers and, and it's not going to be good. Um, Timothy, the Apostle Paul write to Timothy and he tell Timothy, look, there's people there teaching, getting into genealogies and myths and different things. He says they need to be commanded to stop teaching and to, and to learn, to focus and to learn. Um, Peter would do the same thing. Jude would do the same thing dealing with false teachers in the audience of the people, the churches that they wrote to. And so it was a, it was a common thing. Well, how much more even today? We're we going to have when I think uh, some of the stuff that's coming from some of the churches around our nation and some of the the, the sins and, and outright abominations before God that are being accepted and even promoted in some, in many of the churches around our nation. There's going to be a lot of answering one day because a lot of people are being impacted in horrible ways. I was listening to a thing just this last week talking about transgenderism and they were talking about the impact. You're talking about a group that. Psychologists and stuff look at people and say that the people that, that struggle with uh, a real confusion is like less than a percent, around 1% of people. But now you're having people in some of these larger cities, teachers in some of these classes that are saying, like one teacher said, 24% of my class is now claiming to be different than what they are. 
24%. So they're looking at it and they're saying, well, this can't be, this is, even if there was a natural motivation or reason for this, which there isn't, even if there was a natural motivation, uh, it would not be this kind of percentage. This has to be a social phenomenon. What that means is, what's going around in our society is impacting people and they're gaining attention from it and they're getting, and they think it's exciting and so they're pursuing it. The point that I'm making is that a lot of the speech that's going around that's endorsing and promoting these different aberrant views and these, and these different unnatural scenarios are impacting people and they're affecting lives. And that's tragic. That's tragic from our standpoint on an internal basis because those kind of things are exactly how God did not create the world and there's a real price to be paid for that. That's tragic on even just a humanitarian level because I also understand that the more recent statistics are the people that go through those kinds of physical changes uh, and I have like a 50% suicide rate a little farther down the road. And so these things are destroying lives. And God says, you know what? This, there's going to be an account for this. People are going to pay the price for this. Now, I remember years ago, driving down the road, listening to a radio program. It was just secular news station, WCCO, down in the cities. Oh, what was the guy's name? Carson? Carlson? I forget his last name now, but he was the guy that kind of helped Abraham Maslow put together his hierarchy of needs and that kind of stuff. Modern psychologist. And they promoted, had promoted in the past this idea of a contractual relationship between parents and children. That the parent and the child sit down and they make a contract of this is what your chores are, this is what your duties are in the house, and, and they sign it <laughs> like a business deal almost. And, and so it kind of removes the parent from being a parent to being kind of an equal business partner in the home. And they're going through and he's explaining that whole theory and how they came to that conclusion and that they put out. And he says, there's only one problem. And the, the person interviewing said, really, what's the problem? That yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> and, and, and then they just went on talking like it was nothing. And I thought, wait a minute, back this up. How many families did you ruin because they listened to you? How many kids are now adults that don't know how to cope or function because, because they were listening to some quack like you? Tell them to make a contract with their two-year-old. And let them sign it with a crayon. You see, that's exactly the thing. Is that If we're not careful, that's what it degenerates into. Words are impacting. We have to make sure they're impacting in the right direction. We have to make sure that we don't just speak carelessly or foolishly. We need to have a positive impact in people's life. We need to speak truth. Because words also, he gets more graphic with his next illustration, they destroy. Words destroy. He says the tongue is like a fire. This fire is lit up from hell itself. Now, the word for hell there is actually literally the Valley of Hinnom. Right next to Jerusalem was a valley uh, called the Valley of Hinnom. And in that valley, if you look back before Israel was in there, back during the time of the Canaanites, they actually sacrificed children to the god Molech in this valley, in the Valley of Hinnom. Sadly, Israel, as they turned their back on God and followed other gods at times, also participated in some of the same foolishness. Josiah, the king, he put a permanent end to it. So what happened was, when he put an end to it, they looked at the Valley of Hinnom as... Uh, being a place that was corrupted, a place where all this evil atrocities had happened, we can't use that for anything. So you know what they did is they just turned it into a dump. The whole city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area just threw all their trash 
and they threw uh, animal carcasses and things like that. All that just got thrown down into the Valley of Hinnom where they had a fire that just burned per- perpetually. It just kept burning. People just kept throwing their trash and more and more trash and it just kept burning all the time. And so Jesus often used that Valley of Hinnom as a, an illustration of hell. And James is using that word. The half-brother of Jesus uses that word and says, look, this is the Valley of Hinnom, this, this fire that's always burning down there, always burning up the trash. He says, our tongue can be like that fire that is just consuming all the time. Consuming. You know, fire is amazingly destructive. In the last couple of years of being on the fire department, it has amazed me the abilities of fire. It takes way more water than I ever thought it would take to put out a fire that gets going. Way more water. You know, back in 18, oh, what was it, 1876, I want to say, somewhere in there, an older lady that had a farm out in the Chicago area, a lantern, they figure about 8.30 in the evening, lantern got kicked over by an animal is what they figured would happen. And the fire caught and began to spread. They got on it as quick as they could and tried to put out the fire. That fire consumed 17,500 buildings, killed 300 people, made 125,000 people homeless. You know it as the Great Chicago Fire. The kind of damage a fire can do is just amazing. And he says, you know what, if we're not careful, our tongue can do that same kind of thing. There was a time in my life when I was a teenager and my mouth got away from me an awful lot in those days. And it got me into quite a few scrapes. And I remember hearing about somebody else that's also a teenager. His mouth got away from him and it got him into a little bit too much trouble and he ended up stabbed on a dead-end road one night. And I thought, oh, maybe I better tone it down start watching my mouth a little bit more. You know, your mouth will cause you more problems than your body ever thought a problem causing. It's usually through the, the sins from our mouth that destroy relationships, that tear down families, that isolate individuals. It's that kind of destruction that it brings. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. This, this thing can go either way. It can be hugely positive and constructive, or it can be deathly violent. Well then, lastly, lastly, the words can contradict. <laughs> We've got to be careful. Or we find ourselves contradicting ourselves, maybe either in the specific words that we use or just in the way that we use them. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And then he gives two more illustrations. He says, this shouldn't be. He says, can a, can a spring bring forth both salt water and fresh water? Can one kind of tree bring forth a different kind of fruit? In nature, we don't see this, but in humanity, we see it. In nature, there's no contradiction. In humanity, we have contradiction. When we bless God, that's a good thing. That's our tongues being used for a great thing. And when you think about it, think all the beautiful songs and poems and hymns that are out there that impact us in good ways. And then for those that you find that are good, you can also find those that are destructive. But he says that that's contradictory. If we're going to bless God, how do we then turn around and curse man who is made what? In the image of God. Now mankind, of course, has fallen. And so the image of God within us is marred a little bit. But he says not enough to show disrespect. They still bear the image of God. And so every individual needs to be treated with dignity and respect. You know, in Psalm 141, verses 1 through 3, David starts off with praise. He says, O Lord, I call upon You. Hasten to Me. Give ear to My voice when I call to You. Let My prayer be counted as incense before You and the lifting up of My hands as the evening sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? 
But notice the very next thing David says. And this is the guy that's known as what? The, the man after God's own heart. The very next thing that he said is, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's like, what are you talking about? You just said something beautiful. That was, that was awesome worship before God. In fact, good enough to write down and for everybody to learn for like forever after this. It's inspired even. Why? Because David recognizes that even in the midst of this beautiful prayer that his tongue can also be used for evil and for hatred. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 19-21 through 21 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for a lack of sense. You know, the challenge for us from the book of James is that we would be the people from this proverb. We would be the one who restrains our lips and is prudent. We would be the one who speak with the tongue of the righteous, which is choice silver. We would be the one with the lips of the righteous that feed many.